July 25th, 2000. Air France 4590 prepares to depart Paris's Charles de Gaulle Airport as a charter flight with 100 passengers and 9 crew members. The flight is taking off one hour behind schedule due to a maintenance issue. At 4.40pm, the flight lines up on runway 26 right and begins its takeoff roll. As it is accelerating the takeoff, flames erupt out of the plane's number 2 engine on the left side of the plane. Air traffic control contacts the captain to alert them that their plane is on fire. The plane is too far down the runway to abort takeoff, so the pilot has to pull back on his controls and attempt to get the plane into the air. The plane struggles to gain altitude, stalls, and falls to the ground into a hotel near the airport. The crash kills all 109 on board as well as 4 people in the hotel. What caused the Concorde to catch fire and plummet to earth? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Welcome to Black Box Down, brand new podcast. I guess this is episode three. Episode three. Welcome, Chris. Uh, Thank you. Thanks, everyone who's listening. Uh, as always, if you enjoy what we're doing, make sure you tell a friend uh, that they should also subscribe and uh, yeah. and check it out. I think hopefully, even if people aren't interested necessarily in aviation specifically, hopefully, you know, this is still uh, interesting enough. You know, it's that whole like true crime aspect, like what happened, like kind of like digging a little bit below I mean, the surface. My mouth dropped when you read that opening. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty <laughs> horrific. Um I remember when this uh, when this crash happened. There's a uh, there's some footage. There's very little footage. Of course, it was 2000. Like there weren't a ton of smartphones, so not everyone was recording. But there was a um, I believe there was a truck driver who was uh, driving by the airport who has uh, some really shaky footage of the plane taking off on fire. And uh, I believe there's also a couple of images of the plane taking off from the runway uh, with flames shooting out of it. It's really horrific looking. I mean, you never want to. S- Obviously, <laughs> this this is this is a bad situation, but this was really really terrible to have a plane uh, on fire like this. Yeah, you sent me that video and uh, a picture, and it looks like a rocket ship mm-hmm. going sideways almost. Yeah, like there's that much fire. Yeah, it, it is. It is the left wing uh, is engulfed in in flames. You know, this ultimately we'll get into this a little a little later, but this ultimately kind of leads to the end of the Concorde era. You know, the Concorde was. Um, the second of only two supersonic passenger airliners that, uh, and this, the Concorde had a maximum speed of Mach 2.04. So it could oh, go. It's one of those ones. Right. It could go it's, over, over double the speed of sound. So it's one of those super, super fast ones that goes like from Europe to Texas in like an hour. Right? Yeah. It could go actually from, uh, New York to LA in just over two hours. You know, a normal plane goes from New York to LA in about six to seven hours. So yeah. it's like much, much faster. The Concorde could go faster than the speed of sound, but that creates a sonic boom. So it could only break the sound barrier over oceans. It wasn't actually gotcha. allowed to do it over land because it would probably piss a bunch of people off. Yeah. But the Concorde, it's a very unique looking plane. If you're not familiar with planes, you can probably identify this one. It doesn't look like a normal plane. Like normally you picture a plane, you picture like two wings sticking out with some engines under it. The Concorde looked almost like a lawn dart. You know, it's like a big triangle. Yeah. With like, they call it delta wings. It was almost more like a fighter jet that people... That you could get into? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was it was always when I was a little kid it was always a dream of mine to fly on the Concorde. I never got the chance to, you know, they don't you can't fly on a Concorde anymore. They were very expensive planes to maintain and as a result the plane tickets were incredibly expensive. So for example, a round trip ticket in 1997 uh between, you know, Paris and New York would probably be about $8,000, which is equivalent today about $12,700. So it, on average, <laughs> it was about 30 times more expensive than the cheapest option at that time. 30 times more expensive, but you'd get there uh, a fraction of the time, fr- let's, let's, yeah. let's just a couple hours. So the Concorde was actually uh, a little bit of an older plane. It was first flown in 1969 and started flying commercially in 1976. So it's been around for a while. Yeah, it had been around for a while. It had been around, it had been flying for about 24 years commercially before this happened, and it had never had a fatality. It had, been, had a very pristine safety record. Man. 
because they, they, because it was under so much stress. You know, when you fly uh-huh. at a supersonic speed, things get really hot. There's a lot of pressure. So they required a lot of maintenance. So they were constantly being worked on, which is one of the reasons that tickets were so expensive. Yeah. If any time they flew it, you know, they had a ton of stuff that they had to, to check and uh, things wore out a lot more quickly than on a regular plane. So just needed constant maintenance. And like I said, you know, you, you could I definitely identify this plane, even if you don't know anything about planes. Like I said, it has delta wings, and these wings run along the length of the plane, and they kind of widen out towards the tail section. An interesting bit of trivia uh, about this plane is that it, it needed to have a super high angle of attack when landing. Well, in general, it needed to. but what, what, So specifically in landing, it needed to have a super high uh, angle of attack and also in takeoff, and it didn't have any flaps. Like normally we've talked about flaps uh-huh. before, like hydraulic systems where like uh, flaps uh, extend out of the wings to give additional lift. So as a result of that, when it landed, it needed such a high angle of attack that the pilots would basically be looking at the sky. They couldn't see the runway. So the... the when they're landing? Right. Because the, the, the plane was angled so high up because in order to generate enough lift. So the nose of the plane would actually angle down so that they could see... Like independently of the rest of the plane, the, the nose, the cockpit could angle down. They call it a droop snoot. So the no, <laughs> the nose would lower twelve point five degrees on approach, so that they could see the runway. So it's, like, it's really unusual. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, I always thought it looked like an animal drinking water, like an animal <laughs> kind of like bending down, like putting its its face down. Or one to of get those water. little mechanical birds that dip into the water thing, like oh, yeah. one of the cups. I thought you were going to say a hummingbird, which would have been <laughs> a, a good uh, a good comparison. But no, it could be like those two. Um, and actually, because of this high angle of attack, it needed an extra wheel on the bottom of the tail in order, in order to prevent tail strikes, which is something we covered in the last episode with Japan One Two Three. Yeah. Since it had to take off at such a high angle, it, it had another uh, uh, wheel back there. So anyway, Concorde, super fast plane, super prestigious. It, like I said, it was really expensive. So normally it was like rich people who would fly on the Concorde. Yeah. Mean, really? <laughs> you're <saying, laughs> yeah. you're going to spend that much money to save like two hours on a flight? You're probably going to go with the, yeah. the option that's 30 times cheaper. So this particular uh, incident, Air France Flight 4590, it was actually a charter plane. Uh, a German tour company uh, had chartered it because there was a bunch of German tourists who were going to go to, uh, I believe it was Ecuador, and they mm-hmm. were going to get on a cruise ship. And ultimately, they were going to end up taking a cruise to Sydney for the Sydney Olympics in the year 2000. Like, trip of a lifetime, right? Yeah. Amazing. I think uh, people probably had saved for decades just to be able to, to go on it. Because it. Like I said, it's expensive. You're flying yeah. on the Concorde and the whole other cruise and all of that stuff. So the flight was crewed by Captain Christian Marti, who was 54 years old. He had uh, about 13,400 hours of flying time, uh, 317 of which were in the Concorde. Okay. Uh, he was considered actually one of uh, the premier uh, pilots for Air France. He was very well respected. First officer was Jean Marco, who was 50, with uh, over 10,000 hours of flight time, and about 2,700 of which were in the Concorde. And of course, they also had a flight engineer. We've talked about this before. They still need a flight engineer on this plane. Flight engineer was... Uh, Guy Hardino, I might even mispronounce that, it's a French name. Uh, he was 58 with uh, 12,500 hours, 937 of which were in the Concorde. And uh, this particular plane had uh, a repair four days before the incident and there were no reported problems. Okay. So it had just been through maintenance. But was that pretty standard for those? Um, yeah. I mean, like I said, they, the Concorde constantly needed attention yeah. and maintenance. Uh, it was not unusual. So while they were on their takeoff roll, uh, you know, where they're, they're on the runway and they're starting to accelerate to take off, Flight 4590 ran over some debris that uh, cut the right 
front tire on the left-hand side landing gear. Okay. So I uh, ran over like a little bit of debris and uh, a chunk of tire went flying back. It, it broke, it popped uh-huh. the tire basically. A big chunk of tire that weighed about 10 pounds went flying back uh, and hit the underside of the plane. The, the approximated probably hit at about 310 miles an hour. Oh. So, <laughs> so yeah, a 10-pound piece of rubber hit the underside of the plane going about 310 miles an hour. That's Yeah. So fast. Really fast. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't puncture the plane. Yeah. It didn't, you know, puncture the fuel tank or anything. But what happened was it created a, a big shock wave within the fuel tank that ended up rupturing the fuel tank at its weakest point. So it hit the outside of the plane and it like... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and yeah. And then, you know, it, it, the fuel's going to go to a weak point uh-huh. and it starts spewing out. So uh, while they're taking off, you know, they're going really fast at this point. Uh, fuel starts pouring out of the, uh, the fuel tank under the plane. And then the fuel ignites and catches fire. And then the, the, the flames start roaring back towards engines number one and two because it's on the left side of the yeah. plane. Um, so engines one and two both surge and lose power. The number one engine slowly begins to recover and come up. Wait, they lose power because they're running out of fuel? No, because the, f- the flames are hitting them. Oh. So the, the engines don't know what, to, you know, they're, they're yeah. not designed for that. They're designed to, to ingest air. They're not designed to ingest fire. Uh, so they surge. Uh, engine one begins to slowly recover. And uh, there's a fire warning in the cockpit. The engineer shuts down the number two engine. And uh, an air traffic controller radios the crew and tells them that, uh, that they're on fire. And, uh, but at this point, the Concorde has reached what they call V1 speed and could not abort their takeoff. Like, what would have happened if they had boarded, just like hit a wall or something? Like- they would have gone off the end of the runway. Okay. So it's like there's not enough runway left for them to stop. So, so V1 is it's defined as the speed beyond which takeoff should no longer be aborted. So it's typically the speed when the crew begins to, they call it rotation. It's when they pull back on the stick and rotate the axis of the plane so that it starts taking off. Uh, so aborting takeoff at this speed, you know, it would have made... It would have led to the plane running off the end of the runway at a super high speed. You know, landing gear would have probably collapsed. And it would have crashed yeah. in, at the end of the runway anyway. So they're past V1. The captain has to pull back and take off. And even though the plane had taken off, it was you know unable to climb. Uh, there, there was damage to the landing gear bay door. So the gear couldn't retract, which was also causing additional drag. Two of the engines were operating normally. One was shut down. One was providing weak power. So they really weren't gaining the speed they should have. And then on top of all of that, because of the fire, the left wing started melting and disintegrating. Uh-huh. So essentially, the left side, they have very reduced power and a wing that's melting. And the right side, they have full power so and a normal wing. So it's almost like going to start turning, huh? It, that's actually exactly what happens. There's an imbalance of thrust on the right side. It makes the plane bank over 100 degrees. So if you imagine, at norm, like if you're flying at normal, let's say that's zero degrees. Uh, if you're flying with your right wing straight up in the air, that's uh-huh. 90 degrees. So it was even beyond that. So it was almost almost like on its... It, it was, was it on was its on sides. side, yeah. yeah. So plane banks over 100 degrees. Uh, the crew, of course, they try to reduce power in the three and four engine, but they're still at a kind of a low speed. They're still taking off. This causes the plane to stall. And uh, the plane crashes into a hotel that's nearby. So um, the plane crash kills everyone on the plane, and it actually kills four people in the hotel. Uh, and there's another person in the hotel who's critically injured. So throughout all the operational history of the Concorde, this is the only time that there's ever uh, fatalities. How long was it from them taking off to crash? Um, I don't remember the exact time off the top of my head. I want to say it was about 
three minutes. It was it was very quick. And so they were just on fire in the air for like... They weren't even in the air that long. They were probably in the air just less than a minute. Okay. So it was like a two-minute takeoff, boom, explosion, and then they're up in the air for a minute and then down. Right. I, I want to say that they didn't even get above 200 feet. They were, they were, it was a really low altitude at which point, uh, that this happened. And, and they just like, they just crashed right into the center of the hotel. Uh, yeah, it was a pretty small hotel and they, they plowed right into it. There's, uh, interviews that you can see with people who were in the hotel when it happened. A woman talks about like having to jump out of a window to try because she, she heard the explosion. She opened her hotel room door and there were fires everywhere in the hallway. So she had to jump out of her hotel room window into the parking lot to try to escape. Uh, it's horrific. I mean. The plane was taken off, so it was really full with fuel, uh, which yeah. just leads to uh, leads to even more fire. You know, it just sp- spreads like crazy. It, does jet fuel burn fat? Is it, <laughs> don't, like, don't, careful how you word this question. What does it? Does it melt steel beams? Oh no, no, I'm not getting into. <laughs> does jet fuel like burn faster or differently than like a gasoline in a car? That, or that's a good question. I'm 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 glad you asked that. I wasn't going to talk about that, but that is a really good question. Uh, so when you think about gasoline in your car, mm-hmm. the way that works is when there's ignition, it basically explodes. That's yeah. like the a four cycle combustion engine. Jet fuel in this case doesn't explode like that. It burns, but it doesn't cause a big explosion. Gotcha. So it's a lot more akin to like diesel or kerosene as opposed yeah. to gasoline so you don't worry about it exploding necessarily but it, it will obviously burn its fuel so the investigation is handled by uh, france's accident investigation bureau which is the bea and uh, they found that the plane itself was overloaded by about 1800 pounds uh, but they considered this effect negligible on the incident so there's a bit more to it than that the plane was overweight but there were other compounding factors that may have also, like any like any, <laughs> any crash you're learning, like there were other compounding factors that may have led to this. On top of the plane being overweight, it had a tailwind on takeoff. So normally planes like to take off into the wind with a headwind because that'll mm-hmm. increase the lift over the wings. Uh, with a tailwind, they have to roll longer on the runway uh-huh. to get more speed to be able to take off. On top of that, the, the plane had more fuel than it needed. The captain wanted extra fuel. He thought he would have to taxi a bit and... He wanted to err on the safe side to make sure they had enough fuel for the trip. And the way that the fuel was distributed on the plane, the plane was a little heavy in the aft section on the back, Mm. which makes the center of gravity go back, which kind of imbalances the plane on its own. And again, all of these things by themselves, not a big deal. Together kind of adds up to create problems. Uh, Namely, the biggest problem is that it needed more runway to take off. And as a result of that, it hit a piece of debris further down the runway than it normally would have been rolling on. But shouldn't it, I mean... Those seem like little things compared to like whatever was in the runway. There right. shouldn't be stuff in the runway, You're right. right? So, but they shouldn't. They shouldn't have needed to even get to that point of the runway. They should have been able to take yeah. off before they got to that point. But you're right. And in fact, that became a key focus of the investigation: is why was there debris on the runway, and what was this on the runway? They found a a metal strip, a, a, a titanium metal strip, that, and then they lined it up with the wheel, and they could see very clearly like this is what the wheel hit, and it yeah. it tore the the tore the tire apart. So it took them about five weeks. <laughs> <laughs> to figure out, you know, where this piece of metal comes from. And they found out that about five minutes before this Air France flight, a Continental Airlines DC-10 had taken off on that runway. And uh, this metal strip had fallen off of that plane. It's just a piece of another... It, it, was like a, it was like part of the engine cowling for the number three engine. Uh, it had been replaced in Tel Aviv during regular maintenance in June of 2000, and then replaced again in Houston on July 9th of 2000. And that replacement strip that they put on in Houston uh-huh. had not been manufactured or installed in accordance with the manufacturer procedures. So it was just bad, a bad repair job and it fell off. Right. 
Exactly. They, 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 I believe that the piece of metal was a titanium and mm-hmm. it should have been stainless steel. The investigators say that it had rivets all over it. Like someone didn't install it properly. They just put a bunch of rivets on They're it. They're like, to try eh, to secure like it. it's Good just enough. like, uh, just staple it a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, it's just poor maintenance procedure. So how big of a piece of metal is this? So the piece of metal itself wasn't that big. It was about 17 inches long and about an inch wide. Okay. So it's long for some people. <laughs> it's long for some things, but when you think about a plane, like yeah, a yeah. part of a plane, when, it's it's pretty small. When you said initially there was debris, I was like imagining, you know, something big, something big. But yeah. that's just like that's that's just a little piece of metal that right. you probably wouldn't even you wouldn't even see that. Right. The, the 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 plane's probably going so fast down the runway that they don't even see it. How often do runways get like swept? They they get checked very regularly. Okay. It's uh and. I don't know what the exact legal requirement is or what the exact procedure is, but they are constantly checked uh, to make sure that nothing like this happens. Do they have like a broom? (laughs) (laughs) They have like big street sweepers, like a picture of a street sweeper, uh, things like that. And they'll have people go down and do visual inspections. And there's a variety of equipment intended specifically for this purpose. Gotcha. So as part of the investigation, the aircraft and crew were found to be qualified and airworthy. Uh, and but there was no plan that existed for what to do when two engines simultaneously give out on the runway. It was considered highly unlikely. Uh, it was also determined that the damage to the plane was so severe that a crash would have happened even if all engines had been operating normally. And again, that is the the BEA's findings. There are some people who disagree with these with these findings, and you'll find that as we do more of these episodes, that sometimes people will disagree with the findings. Uh, I've I watched an interview with uh, another Concorde pilot who puts a little bit of blame on this on the flight engineer. He huh. he alleges that the flight engineer shut down the number two engine without telling the captain that that was the case uh, and that the t- engine should not have been shut down because the engine wasn't on fire. There was a fire going into the engine. Oh. The, 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 the interview with this other Concorde pilot says that there's procedures for this that, you know, they um, there were some switches that needed to be flipped and there should have been better communication. But again, who knows if that would have helped or, yeah. or what would have happened did they not you said that the the radio tower told them hey you're on fire right did they not know until they were radioed they well i mean you think about like sitting in the front of a plane you know there's no rearview mirror there's really no way to look back you, you mm-hmm. try to figure out what's going on based on alarms and errors yeah uh, that you see in the plane so they did get alerts to an engine fire but you don't know what the severity of that is yeah. you don't know if it's something that's contained within the engine you don't they, you know, they probably didn't know that the plane itself was on fire. Yeah, because if you look at the pictures or videos, um, it, I mean, it looks like a flamethrower is coming out of the back of a plane, mm-hmm. right? I right. mean, it's 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 huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a massive fire. And there's a, there's another since we're talking about alternative theories mm-hmm. and you know other people that could be to blame. Uh, there's there's this uh, British investigator and some former French Concorde pilots that accuse Air France of negligence as well in this. They said that the airplane was unbalanced and that there was a spacer that was not replaced in the landing gear. Remember I told you four days before it had uh-huh. just been in maintenance. They said that uh, when all this investigation was going on, they went to the maintenance bay where the Concorde was worked on and they found a spacer that should have been on that plane that wasn't. And what this spacer does is, as the name implies, it, it keeps space between the tires on the landing gear and it keeps them aligned so that they're pointed straight. Yeah, so they don't like they don't wobble, wobble. like, like yeah. a shopping cart. You know, yeah. you get that shopping cart at a grocery store and it wobbles, and you, you you go take it back. Well, this imagine that on a plane. <laughs> so because of this wobble, the tire wasn't fully straight down the runway like it should have been. It was wobbling a little bit, uh, which caused the plane to need more speed to take off, and it caused the plane to drift a little bit in its roll in its yeah. takeoff roll. And maybe was the wobbly? Were they both wobbling? Uh, it was on the left side. 
was that the one that got hit by the metal? Yes, it so was. it was also maybe like wobbling and yeah. And there's some people who allege that the plane or that that tire might not have even been facing down the runway. It might have been facing a different direction because another pilot claims that he saw smoke coming out from under the plane as they were rolling for takeoff, like the tire was being dragged and so that and might have weakened the tire also. Again, right. So there's this other extenuating circumstance that may have had something to do with it. Yeah. So the tire may have been weak. They needed more runway to go. The plane rolled slightly to the left. And in fact, when the plane uh, was on fire and when the pilot had to take off, they hit one of the lights on the side of the runway as well. Uh, that's how far they had veered off to the left. Yeah. So, uh, and in fact, when they're uh, doing the investigation, they could see drag marks on the runway left by that piece of uh, gear that showed that the plane was veering left, uh, which again caused the plane to take longer to reach takeoff speed. Uh, and they, they should have been able to take off before they got to that point. It's, it's weird because you, when you initially told the story, I was like, it seemed so simple that it was like it hit something taken off and that was it. Right. Like just a little like open shut case boss, you know, but like, no, no, there's like, oh, it was missing a piece. And oh, there was a little overfueled. And oh, it's like all these little things that kind of like all happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like in most tragedies or most aircraft incidents, it's not any one little thing that leads to disaster. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a cascade of failures, a bunch of different things that happen. So another potentially contributing factor uh, that a, a Concorde, a different, obviously a different Concorde pilot has talked uh -huh. about is that since they were so over fuel that was causing the center of gravity to be further back, that there were pumps on that normally during takeoff, these pumps are off. But mm -hmm. during this takeoff, the pumps were on to move fuel from the back of the plane up to the ruptured tank uh -huh. so that the center of gravity would move forward, which again puts more fuel up there and continues to feed this fire. But again, not a big deal. Probably didn't contribute anything to the crash, but another it made it Weird worse, thing, right? Maybe. That, that 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 did not work in their favor. Over the time the Concorde was operating, there were no fatalities, like I said, except of course for this incident. But there were other tire incidents. Uh, there were quite a few, actually. There were about seventy tire or wheel-related incidents, seven of which caused serious damage and were potentially catastrophic. Uh, in 1981, the NTSB actually sent a letter to the BEA with safety recommendations for the Concorde, uh, which was a result of some uh, NTSB Concorde investigations between 1979 and 1981. Uh, so tires were, were being blown fairly regularly, and this was a concern that this could cause uh, a problem down the road. And there's, there's a bunch. Of, I have a huge list of them here. Uh, I'll just read like a couple of yeah. real quick. So, for example, tire blowout on takeoff that damaged landing gear door, an engine and a fuel tank. Burst tire on takeoff damaging landing gear door, a fuel tank and two engines. Uh, on, ten, on takeoff, 10 bolts came off the landing gear and punctured a fuel tank. So you see, it's, this was an ongoing thing. Uh, and, th and these tire incidents were, were common because of the high speeds that were required for takeoff. So, I mean, what was, is, was there a solution for that that could have been done? Like, a, I don't know, just better tires or? So this, it was an ongoing thing. You know, they, the, the manufacturer was constantly trying to refine it. There had been updates to the tire to make them stronger, but it was, it was still an ongoing issue. Uh, as part of all of this, there was an actual criminal investigation that went along with the, the normal um, investigation as well. And in March of 2005, French authorities began a criminal investigation of Continental Airlines because it was their plane that had dropped the, oh. the piece of metal on the runway. Uh, so in March of 2008, French prosecutor Bernard Faure asked judges to bring manslaughter charges against Continental Airlines and two of its employees, John Taylor, who replaced the strip on the DC-10, and his manager, Stanley Ford, alleging negligence in the way the repair was carried out. Uh, Continental denied the charges and suggested the Concorde was already on fire when its wheels hit the titanium strip. And there were around 20 witnesses who said the plane seemed to be on fire immediately after the takeoff roll began. And this goes back to what I said. Another pilot said he saw smoke like the tire was being dragged. 
it's unclear as to wh- exactly when the fire started. Realistically, the piece of metal probably yeah. <laughs> did, did contribute to this. Uh, and around this time, charges were also laid against uh, Henri Perrier, the head of the Concord program at Aerospatial. That's a French word. I'm sorry. I know I'm butchering it. Who's one of the manufacturers of Concord? Jacques Arubel, who is Concord's chief engineer, and Claude Franson, head of the Directorate General for Civil Aviation, which is the French Civil Aviation Authority. And it alleges that these three knew that the fuel tanks in the Concord could be damaged by foreign objects, but still let the plane fly. Going back to what we talked about before, like, was there an ongoing issue that they knew about uh, that could have been prevented here? Is that normal to bring charges to a guy who repairs planes? Uh, Typically, no. I believe this is uh, something that's unique to uh, France, where they will run a criminal investigation concurrent with the accident investigation. So it's it's not terribly common, but it, mm. it can happen. If you think about in uh, Japan Airlines 123 as well, there, there was an investigation into the maintenance workers there. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't believe there were criminal investigations uh, carried out there, but you know they do, they do try to find exactly who was responsible for it. So this trial ran in a Parisian court from February to December in 2010. So it's 10 years after the, the incident. They're, oh, still, t- they're still dealing with it, right? The, the crash was in 2000. The trial was in 2010. And were they, like, why did it take 10 years to, to go to trial? I mean, I know it's a slow process, but that seems well really... They, they, they began the criminal investigation in March of 2005. They uh, brought charges in March of 2008. It's just the it's, slow bureaucracy man. of of uh, running a trial and Continental was found criminally responsible for the disaster and was fined 200,000 euros and was ordered to pay Air France 1 million euros. Taylor, who was the uh, mechanic who actually mm-hmm. put that strip on, was given a 15-month suspension while Ford, Perrier, Aerobel, and Franson were cleared of charges and the court ruled that the crash resulted from the piece of metal dropped by the DC-10. So eventually these convictions, however, were overturned by a French appeals court in November of 2012, you see this is still Man. ongoing years later, uh, Continental and Taylor were cleared of criminal responsibility. However, Continental was still liable for compensation claims and would have to pay 70% of those claims. Uh, Air France had paid 100 million euros to the families and victims and Continental was made to pay their share of that. So no one went to jail. No. no it one. was just, that's what I was, I was just imagining like a, like a, a an airplane worker who did a crappy job and then ended up in jail, which is, but I mean, he inadvertently kind of was responsible for the deaths of what, 109, wait, 113, 113 people, people mm-hmm. with the hotel. It would also be tricky. I mean, how would the country of France put an American citizen in yeah. French jail? I mean, yeah. I, I, so it, it's messy. Uh, it's, a, it's messy all the way around. So it's probably why they settle on a suspension instead yeah. of uh, trying to put him in jail. And a fine. Right. Yeah. So until this crash, uh, the Concorde had been considered the among the safest airplanes in the world, uh, but this crash ultimately was a big contributor in the end of the Concorde service. Uh, a few days after the crash, all Concords were grounded, and eventually commercial service resumed in November of 2001, about a year after the crash, uh, after some safety improvements. You know, they improved the tires, and they actually put a Kevlar lining in the fuel tanks to try mm. to keep them from rupturing. They did a whole bunch of stuff to try to make it safe. But it wasn't enough. Uh, Concorde was retired two years later in October of 2003. Was that just partly because people didn't want to fly on them anymore? Because well, I mean, Partly that, uh, but there, there was a lot going on at the time. Uh, the September 11th attacks in New York oh, resulted yeah. in decline in uh, air travel. Um, people maybe were afraid of the Concorde. It's just, it was a really bad time for aviation all around. 
Mm. Um, Air France stopped flying Concorde in May of 2003. British Airways stopped October 2003. Uh, in June of 2010, there were two groups who tried to revive the Concorde for some heritage flights for the 2012 Olympics, but they were unsuccessful. Uh, and uh, now there's a monument established at Gonesse, which is the town where the hotel was um, in France in order to honor the victims of the crash. Another monument was built in 2006, just south of Charles de Gaulle Airport. But that was a terrible incident that ultimately led to the suspension of the Concorde. It's a plane I always wanted to fly on, and I, I never had a, an opportunity to. Yeah. So you, you were familiar, before we started talking about all of this, you, you could probably point out the Concorde, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I just knew about a plane that was super fast that was retired, and it looked weird. Mm -hmm. Are there any other planes that you identify that you could be like, oh, I want to fly on that, or I, I liked flying on that plane? Because I'm, I'm curious to know, like, well, from an outsider perspective, like, how how important is the kind of plane to you? I, I No, I mean, I've never really thought much about it. I don't I don't like the planes that are really small uh, because they feel a little, like, I think they have a little more turbulence, mm -hmm. and then they don't have the little screens. As, <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're most concerned yeah. with the flight amenities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, like when I book travel, I'll look at the different planes I'll potentially be on and book different legs so that I can fly on different planes. That's yeah. So that, I, I've never even thought about that. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm, but I'm, like I said, I'm a big uh, yeah. aviation aficionado. So I try to, to fly on as many different planes as I can. Do you think that there's going to be some advancement soon that's going to have those faster airplanes again? Not that exact version, right? But just something where it's like, hey, technology is improving uh, let's get let's get places faster and cheaper. I think ultimately, yes and no. I think the answer to your question is a little complicated. I don't think we'll have another supersonic plane like that, mm -hmm. but I think we will see reduced travel time by using reusable rockets, like stuff that SpaceX is doing, mm. where you go, like really not a plane, but you get yeah. on a rocket and you go into like suborbit and then oh. come back down. Oh, yeah. Man, that's basically like almost space travel. Right. You, We may see that at some point. There's a lot of downsides to a supersonic plane like this on top of the maintenance. They can't break the sound barrier over land. There's a bunch of other problems. I think it'll be people will just go up. Well, what's weird to me is I didn't know that this plane had been around for so long. Because mm -hmm. you said, what, the six, 60s? It did its first flight in 69. Uh, that was like a, a test flight. Then it entered commercial service uh, in 1976. Okay, yeah. In my head. Because I knew of this super fast plane, but I thought it was like something made in the 90s that lasted for like 10 years and then mm. retired. Or like, it, I didn't realize it was going for, I mean. Yeah, I had like a quarter century of service. And yeah, and ultimately got undone by one terrible tragedy. Uh, I think airlines just realized that on top of the constant maintenance and, you know, the bad publicity at this point and the decreased demand for that kind of travel, it just all much like an aircraft incident. It was like all these external mm -hmm. factors come together in the perfect storm to uh, to end the uh, the time of the Concorde. Yeah. Now, now I'm just thinking about the, the band uh, and comedy show Flight of the Concords. I don't know if that has it. They're probably talking about the birds. <laughs> <laughs> they're probably talking about the birds. <laughs> well, they're spelled Concord, C-H-O-R-D. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, because it's a pun. Yeah, yeah okay, never mind. And if you want to see any of the images uh, that we talked about in this episode of the Concord on Fire or some of that video, we'll be posting it on our social channels. So make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BlackBoxDownPod. And also be a link for that in the description. Yes, it's a, it's amazing to see and uh, it's terrifying to imagine. I can't imagine what uh, people on that plane went through. So yeah, yeah definitely uh, give it a follow on social and, uh, and check those things out. All right, well, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And as always, uh, if you enjoy what we're doing, uh, tell a friend. 
uh, have them subscribe. Give us some ratings on uh, whatever platform you download podcasts on. And uh, give us a follow on social. Uh, thanks, Chris. I feel like we, we learned a lot today. We did. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. If you can't get enough of me and Chris talking about airplanes, you should go to roosterteeth.com Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. where we uh, play video games involving planes, airports, anything related to aviation, and uh, we talk about whatever's on our minds. So just go to roosterteeth.com 11 a.m. Central Time on Thursdays to check out our uh, gameplay live streams.